Welcome to PwC's Accounting and Reporting podcast series. Our mission is to inform and educate accountants and other stakeholders on today's most important accounting issues. I am Heather Horn, a partner in PwC's national office, and I'll be your host today. In today's episode, I'm happy to welcome back to the studio Andreas Ohl, a partner in PwC's national office who specializes in transactions and valuations. Andreas will be discussing the FASB's recently issued invitation to comment on the accounting for identifiable intangible assets and subsequent accounting for goodwill. This is a complex topic and the potential outcome of the ITC could be quite impactful to reporting. I'm looking forward to an interesting conversation. So Andreas, welcome back to the studio and thanks for joining us today to talk about the FASB's invitation to comment on identifiable intangible assets and subsequent accounting for goodwill. I know that the FASB issued the invitation to comment on July 9th, and there's been a lot of interest on it. Uh, but before we actually get into the details of what they're asking, can you just give us some background on sort of the current model for the accounting? Sure. So currently, and this has been the case for about 20 years now, goodwill is not amortized under U.S. GAAP. It's tested for impairment on an annual basis or when there's a triggering event between the annual impairment testing uh, date. The development that's happened over the last few years is we have the private company council and they about five years ago allowed for optional goodwill amortization and then more recently earlier this year that alternative was extended to not-for-profit entities. So there's been a little bit of movement away from the, uh, the non-amortization model that we've, we've had for some, uh, for some period of time now. So what spurred the FASB to issue the invitation to comment? So they, they've received feedback from a variety of stakeholders over the last few years. They do have a process that they go through when there's new standards called the uh, post-implementation review. They did one of those on the business combination standard a few years ago, as well as on the fair value standard. And a significant amount of the feedback that they received, particularly from preparers in that process, was that the, uh, there were certainly some challenges with the impairment-only model for testing goodwill uh, in terms of the actual implementation, as well as it was very costly, and at least some preparers were questioning whether the sort of the benefit that was received by users or the marketplace in, in, in general, whether that justified the cost that they were incurring to, uh, you know, to implement the, the standard. Yeah, it's interesting reading the invitation to comment, a lot of discussion on cost-benefit, but it seems like sort of the fundamental question they're asking is, should you change the model for goodwill? And then I know there's some follow-on. So before we jump into those what is sort of the debate around the proposal to amortize goodwill? Yep. So the ITC has a couple pieces. Probably the centerpiece, which is the one that most people will have heard about, is should there be a return to goodwill amortization? And if so, should that be optional as it is for private companies and not-for-profits, or should it just be everybody has to uh, amortize? And that second question of whether it's optional or not is, or the sub-question of whether it's optional or not is actually almost as controversial maybe as should you change the model back to uh, back to amortization. So that that's the crux of it is should we amortize goodwill? There's a number of considerations there before you get into some of the other questions that are asked in the uh, in the ITC. 
maybe the first one is do impairments, which occur periodically currently, do they really provide information to the marketplace? Or are they really a lagging indicator that they're telling us something that the market already knows? And there's been some academic studies around that, and there's certainly uh, differing viewpoints on how much information an actual impairment charge provides to the marketplace. The, the other maybe subset of that is even if the impairment charge itself isn't providing a lot of information, companies typically and this is something the regulators focus on, they will typically have some sort of what we call early warning disclosures. So there'll be some sort of disclosures in the quarters leading up to the actual impairment that indicate, hey, this particular piece of my business isn't performing as expected, and while it's passing the impairment test, it's passing by a narrow margin and maybe if X or Y or Z were to happen or to change on some of the key inputs, it would flip to a, uh, an impairment. And so some people believe that those disclosures that indicate an impairment might be coming are, are something that's useful to the market and that that does move the, uh, move the needle in terms of stock prices and the like. And that by the time the impairment actually happens, it really just confirms what people were already thinking because of these early warning disclosures. So the, the challenge then is if you start to amortize down goodwill, the likelihood of there being an impairment obviously goes down because you have a smaller balance that you have to uh, be able to yeah. support. So that would, in theory, mean fewer impairments, all else equal, and fewer early warning disclosures, particularly um, after a couple of years of amortization. Obviously, it depends on the life. The longer the life, the, the, the longer the period of time before the carrying value of the goodwill is substantially reduced from the original, the original fair value at the acquisition date. Yeah, and I think, so we'll definitely talk a little bit about disclosures when we get further into this, because I know that there's some questions from the ITC about that. But I think you led into sort of my first main topic, which is this question of amortization period. So if you do cross <clears throat> the bridge and say, okay, either we need an optional or everyone should start amortizing goodwill, then how do you think about what potential amortization periods you should use? Yep. So that, that's certainly something the, the FASB is looking for feedback on. If you go back to the old days when we used to amortize goodwill, the, the life was 40 years. And that 40 years was established many, many decades ago, and there wasn't really a lot of uh, technical basis for, for why 40 years. It was just a sort of a long time, I guess. Yeah, the business uh, cycle seems a little different now than it did yeah, the back when this Yeah, the world has changed a lot since yeah. the 1950s or 60s, whenever the 40 years was, uh, was written into the standards. So there, there's a couple different ways maybe to think about it. If you are on the, hey, we want to try to simplify things as much as possible, you could use either 10 years, which is the life that's currently prescribed for private companies to sort of create consistency between public and private um, entities. You could also pick something like 15 years, which is the life for U.S. tax purposes. Now, obviously, some larger companies need to consider tax lives in jurisdictions other than the U.S., but for many U.S. GAAP reporters, the U.S. tax law is the only or by far the most important one 
And so that would certainly simplify things if you use the same life for, for book and for, uh, for tax. So that would be, some people will no doubt in their comment letters vote for 15, uh, 15 years. Uh, others would say, well, maybe we should have some sort of a quantitative approach that tries to capture, well, over what period is the, the goodwill creating value or adding value to the, uh, to the enterprise. That particularly would apply if you think that goodwill is an asset that wastes over, over time. Others say, well, maybe you should take a, some sort of a weighted average of all the lives of the assets acquired mm -hmm. and then just use that for, for goodwill. And then um, another kind of thought that's been put out there is, well, most acquisitions involve synergies, and why don't you just take the life of the, the synergies? And the, the challenge, I think, with a number of these approaches is that if you look at the cash flow model that most companies prepare in order to get board approval for the acquisition and the purchase price that's going to be involved, that cash flow forecast typically has an indefinite life. And if you look at, if you break that forecast into pieces, the, the cash flows in the early periods are related to specific assets acquired, inventory, technologies, things that clearly have a limited life. And so if you have an unlimited forecast period and the early year cash flows go to specific identified intangibles, by default that kind of says that the out years in the forecast that go on kind of forever must relate to the goodwill. And so if you try to somehow match the life you're going to use to what's in the cash flow forecast used to price the deal and that drives how one allocates the purchase price, you do have a bit of a, a disconnect because it pushes you either to a very, very long life or even potentially back to indefinite, which is where we're, which is where we're starting. So uh, that raises a couple questions. I think the first question is, given sort of the focus in the document on cost-benefit, do you think that that means there'll be almost like a bias towards let's do something simplistic because it does become so complicated? Well, I, th I think the document tries to be fairly balanced on that. There is a lot of discussion about cost-benefit, and I think that is because that's some of the feedback that the FASB has received from, uh, from stakeholders. And so the question really will be, cost-benefit obviously has a different impact on different stakeholders because the costs are primarily carried by the preparers and the benefits primarily go to the users. Right. And so it'll be interesting to see if the, the letters that the, that the FASB receives back, um, whether there's really a stark difference in the perspectives of those two key stakeholder groups in terms of how much weight they put on cost versus, uh, versus benefit. Right, and I guess how they view benefit, right? Because even from a user's perspective, something predictable like a 10 or 15 year life, maybe in some cases they might find more useful. So, I mean, it'll be interesting, I guess. Yeah, I mean, that's one of the questions around the life. Obviously, if you just say everybody uses 15 years, there's no information content for users at all right. in, the, in the useful life. If somebody is going to do something more quantitative in nature where they're truly going to try to say what is the cash flow life of the goodwill, there may be some information content um, in that. And I guess we'll come back to that maybe a little bit when we talk about disclosures later on. Okay, so then let's move on then to the next topic that's talked about in the ITC and also actually relates to something that um, the PCC alternative. And that would be 
whether or not other identifiable intangible assets recognized in a business combination should be subsumed as part of goodwill. And so can you give us a little background on this debate? Sure. So the private company alternative currently allows companies to the option to not recognize separately um, two types of intangibles. One is non-compete arrangements, which for publics tend to be a very small number. It's often immaterial, so that's probably not going to get a lot of discussion. The second one is certain types of customer relationship assets. And what the private company alternative allows you to do is you have the option to not record those separately and instead record them as part of, uh, part of goodwill. So th there's been a lot of debate over the years as to whether certain types of customer assets that are being recorded, whether they really truly are separate from goodwill. Customer assets span a very large spectrum. You have everything from something that's very contractual. So think about a mobile phone um, mm -hmm. subscriber or a magazine subscription or something like that where you know everything about your customer, you have a contract, you have very specific terms. And then on the other end of the spectrum, you have customer relationships, which are more in a, say, a business-to-business -business context where you buy widgets every once in a while when you need them. Right. And if you do, you tend to buy them from me, but you may only buy them once every year or two. And if, I, if someone were to acquire my business, they would record a customer asset for your propensity to buy your widgets for me. So that's very different than you buy a service every month from me pursuant to a contract. And, so, and there's lots of fact patterns that are somewhere in between. And so it's really those that are on the, uh, what some people would say, the squishier end of the spectrum that people have historically debated whether those really meet the definition of a separable asset and whether you can really measure those accurately. Now, what's in the ITC is the ITC goes a lot farther than that. It doesn't stop and just say, should certain types of customer intangibles maybe be assumed into goodwill? It also asks whether other intangibles or maybe even all intangibles should be assumed into goodwill, which would be quite a, quite a significant change from where we are today, because that would mean that things like brands, trade names, technology assets, things where you have clear contractual rights because you have patents or trademarks or other things that can very easily be validated, that those types of things would no longer be separately measured if, if you thought that assuming all assets into goodwill um, that 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 made uh, that made sense so like I said that would be quite a quite a change now this does in turn impact the question we had a moment ago which is the more you put assets that clearly have a finite life such as customer relationships mm -hmm. if you say those are now part of goodwill that strengthens the argument that goodwill should be amortized because now, in addition to some of the components that are there currently that perhaps have, an, have a very long or maybe even indefinite life, you now have goodwill components potentially that clearly do not have an right. indefinite life. Right. And that, uh, that would strengthen the argument for uh, amortization. In fact, the way the private company alternative works is if you elect to um, assume customer assets into goodwill, then you must 
amortize goodwill. You lose the you lose the optionality if you check the box on one. Why don't though we move on then to another question that I know is in there, which is around the goodwill impairment test. So I know over the past, let's say eight to 10 years, the FASB's made some changes, try to simplify goodwill impairment or make it a little easier for preparers, but they have some additional proposals in the ITC. So can you talk about those? Sure. So there have been a number of changes in the last few years to try to make the impairment process a bit uh, a bit easier for uh, for preparers what's in the ITC now is one item is should we move to a trigger based impairment test as opposed to an annual impairment test all other assets are tested for impairment on a trigger basis goodwill and indefinite lived intangibles are the only one that have this sort of mandatory annual process and so the question is should we move and treat those assets the same way as, as everything uh, as everything else. Um, the second thing that's in there is goodwill is tested for impairment at the reporting unit level. Other assets are tested at the asset group level. Um, the question is, should the testing be done at a different level, i.e. potentially at a higher level? Now, that would result in fewer impairments, right? The higher in the organization you test for impairment, the more likely it is that you're grouping assets that have problems with assets that are fine, which reduces the likelihood that you have an impairment. It also probably enhances the cushion, you know, kind of the gap between the fair value of the group that you're testing and the, uh, and the carrying value, and as a result, maybe makes it more likely that you'll be able to do a qualitative test and not actually get into the quantitative test. So certainly that was the idea around whether we should test at a, at a higher level. I think at least some users that I've spoken to have some concerns with that regarding uh, whether, whether if you test at too high of a level, is there really much information content left in, in impairment testing if you... Uh, if impairments are going to really become rare because you're testing at a really high level, maybe even at a total company level. So then that's perfect lead into my next topic, which is around disclosures. And you started talking about disclosures and the fact that the sort of pre-warning disclosures can be very helpful to users. So then what types of disclosures are being considered as part of this proposal? So there's a couple things in there related to disclosures. What one is to try to have companies say more about what actually the goodwill consists of. Today, people often will say, oh, it's synergies and, and other not identified assets. And I think they'd like to get into a little bit more detail as to, well, what is the goodwill really? And again, if you assumed more things into goodwill, then that kind of a disclosure clearly would make even more sense than uh, in the current world where, where that's not the case. So that's certainly one thing they're looking at. Uh, the, other, the other thing is to try to have management sort of explain, well, what are the value drivers in the acquisition? And then have some basis to assess whether those things are actually coming to pass over time, such that if an acquisition maybe wasn't performing as expected, that there'd be something in the disclosures that would talk about that, maybe even if it wasn't going to result in an impairment because of one of these other things we talked about, that you'd amortize down a lot of the goodwill or 
you uh, were testing at a higher level so that even if it wasn't going to trigger an impairment, you'd still have a early warning-ish type disclosure, I guess you could call it, that says, hey, things aren't maybe going the way we, we, we planned at the time of the acquisition. Not necessarily going to result in an impairment, but users, you should still know this acquisition is not performing as expected. So that's sort of the flavor of, I think, what they're trying to uh, get people's thoughts on. Would that help with that there'd still be some benefit, even if you maybe made some of these other changes we were describing it's earlier. Simplification. Okay, that's helpful. So then, Andreas, I know um, that to kind of moving to our last topic and to wrap things off, I know that the uh, International Accounting Standards Board is also looking at goodwill and intangibles. Um, so can you talk a little bit about their project and then also maybe more broadly sort of any other considerations companies should be thinking about here? Sure. Yep. The ISB is looking at something similar. They're going to put a document out. I think they're targeting the fourth quarter of this year. The document may be a bit different than this one, but will ask in all likelihood some similar questions around should you or shouldn't you amortize, should it be optional, things like that. Um, right now, the business combination standard between FASB and the ISB are largely converged. The impairment tests do have a number of differences. So some of the changes that are proposed here would address areas that are not converged, mm -hmm. like the impairment test. But other ones, like assuming things into goodwill, that's the business combination standard. And so if the FASB were to go down the path of making that change, and the ISB didn't, you would then take something that's currently converged and it would no longer be converged. So there's pieces of this where the boards will likely have more conversation than, than others. So certainly in terms of stakeholders who are looking at this document, they might want to keep in mind that there's going to be another document that might be very similar coming out later in the year and that uh, they may want to comment on, on both, right. for example, because uh, bo both boards are going to deliberate the same subject, and I would assume have some discussions around the path forward, particularly if the path forward were to result in them going different directions on, on something. Um, in terms of other things, you'll notice far back in the ITC, there's sort of a list of what I'll call other considerations, which is just interaction with other standards and so if you make some of the changes we're talking about here um, there may be some impact on how you account for deferred taxes how you account for foreign currency um, and a number of other areas that are listed in there that companies might want to think about you know the i think a lot of the headlines are focused on right. should we amortize goodwill we always want to think when you make an accounting change particularly if you're thinking about is this going to make my life easier or not what what are the knock-on effects on some other areas of uh, Yeah, you don't of, want of, unintended of consequences. That's right, yeah. where, oh, now it's really easy, I amortize goodwill, but wow, my deferred tax accounting yeah. just became much more difficult, and maybe that's not a great trade-off. So companies should look at that list, and it might spur some thoughts on... Uh, what what else they might want to consider in their uh, in their comment letter. Um, the the last thing is the FASB has a separate project to try to minimize or reduce the differences between acquisitions that are business combinations and acquisitions that are asset acquisitions, because there are currently a number of differences, and depending upon how some of this some of these questions are are answered, 
you might reduce or might increase the number of differences. So just for example, if you said assume more assets into goodwill and a business combination, if you had an asset acquisition, currently you, you have to record those assets separately because there is no goodwill in an asset acquisition. So you could create more of a gap between the two where whether something was a business combination or not might fundamentally change the way the financial statements look. So again, for companies that maybe have a lot of transactions that are on that line where right. it might be an asset acquisition, might be a business combination, they may want to think about uh, think about the fact that if some of these proposals were to become gap, that it would potentially make the uh, difference between the two more substantial. Good. That's helpful. So then... I know the comment letter deadline is October 7th and definitely encourage all our listeners to comment. I think this is one that we expect there to be a lot of interest in. And then Andreas, I think it'd be great to have you back. And we were actually supposed to have Chad Morrissey here today, but he got caught in some of these summer storms and wasn't able to make it to the studio. So maybe the two of you could come back after the deadline and it'd be great just to hear guess some preliminary thoughts on other comment letters as well as then where PwC landed on some of these questions. So I'm, I'm issuing you an invitation now to come back. Great, I'm happy to come back. Please join me here again next week when I welcome back to the studio Martin Thistleton Dyer, who will be discussing another proposal related to business combinations. The SEC's proposed changes to Rule 305, Acquisitions and Dispositions of Businesses. Our regular listeners may remember Martin from his podcast in early January related to the SEC's 2019 agenda, and I'm looking forward to having him back. To make sure you never miss an episode, subscribe to our podcast series wherever you find your content. And we'd love to hear from you, so please leave us a review. For PwC, I'm Heather Horn. Thanks for tuning in. This podcast is brought to you by PwC, all rights reserved. PwC refers to the U.S. member firm or one of its subsidiaries or affiliates and may sometimes refer to the PwC network. Each member firm is a separate legal entity. Please see www.pwc.com structure for further details. This podcast is for general information purposes only and should not be used as a substitute for consultation with professional advisors.